on this episode of Progressive Palaver. The group begins our discussion of Rush with our normal preamble, or in this case, overture, and considers the first Rush album, Rush. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we start our segment on the band Rush. In this episode, we have our now standard band preamble, or in this case, overture, and we start with the self-titled debut album, Rush. Welcome to our first episode on Rush. I guess we're going to keep it in North America for this next segment. Um, I imagine we'll go back to the uh, to the UK after this, but um, but yeah. So so Rush and and not only is this another North American band, but it's another North American trio, which is interesting. Although they are Canadian, which is somewhat different. And you know, I think. You know, Rush obviously is a member of, you know, the, the prog rock pantheon, if I want to use ridiculous hyperbole at this point. Um, you know, and, and I, 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 I would imagine we all probably have somewhat similar initial experiences with, with Rush because when we were growing up, you know, they were a radio staple. And I certainly didn't know at the time, you know, their their hardcore progressive past, if you will. Um, I'm sure people probably a little bit older than us knew that. But it wasn't anything I knew about. You know, I knew Spirit Radio and subdivisions and stuff like that. You know, things that that my brothers would have recorded off the radio onto their, onto their mixtapes. So, um, you know, I, I never really, I, I didn't really know. And, you know, I, I, I made the comment earlier today that I'm a Johnny come lately because I was, I think one of the last guys to, to really get into it and understand it. Um, in fact, one of the funniest things that I remember, do you guys remember the, um, the New Year's Eve we spent at Tom's house shortly after, I guess it was shortly after I had moved to Texas. I remember that very well. Yeah. And um, so when I had moved to Texas, I you know was pretending to be a songwriter and I, I'd written a song called, I think it was Heavy Monk. And I remember talking about it in Tom's kitchen, Paul, and, and you were laughing sort of like you are right now because you said to me, you're like, 
the amazing thing is, it sounds like something Rush would do, and I know you don't even listen to Rush. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, huh, maybe I should listen to it. And, you know, having having listened to or starting, you know, I, I eventually got into um, the earlier catalog. I, I don't think it was until probably the early 2000s, because I remember being in my first house here in Trophy Club. Um, specifically, I remember mowing the yard, listening to hemispheres and just kind of like having my brain melt out of my ears. So, I mean, it was, it was a long time before I really got it all, but you know, there's, there's no denying that they are, you know, they're, they're to use it, to use a, a, a palaver word, they're seminal, you know? <laughs> they really are and and you know it, it's it's interesting when you go back and look at the catalog you know we've 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 talked a lot at this point many 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 hours on progressive music and most of those hours have been spent on yes and marillion which are two five pieces from the uk and here we have, you know, a, a trio from Canada. And, and so there are some sort of fundamental differences about it. And, you know, yes, obviously had sort of seismic changes at times with people coming in and out, um, you know, and, and they had sort of these, these moments of brilliance and then... <laughs> these areas where they're releasing albums that sound like, you know, monitor mixes, um, you know, and Marillion had, you know, a, a much more stable lineup, but they had very similar experiences um, in terms of that. You know, you, you'd have something that was great, some things that were okay. And, you know, when you look at, when at least when I look at the Rush catalog as a whole, it's almost like a bell curve in that, you know, they had sort of a ramp up period and then they had just a really long period of sustained high quality stuff. It changed a little bit in the nature of it going from, you know, the, the, the super esoteric proggy type stuff to some of the, the more polished um, and focused you know, radio centric type things, but all of it was really, really good. And, you know, not to, you know, piss off our, our listening audience too soon, you know, and, and this is just my perception is, you know, and then there was some drop off at the end. I think, you know, a lot of the things after maybe counterparts, and I don't think there were many albums after counterparts, um, you know, weren't necessarily of that quality. So, so basically you've got this sort of, you know, lead in at the end, sort of a lead out at the back end, but in the middle, I mean, they really didn't do much wrong in there. And that's a, that's a really long time and a lot of music for a band to, to maintain that level of quality. It's really quite impressive. Yeah. A lot of the things that you're, <coughs> that you're talking about here, Joe, really 
compliment some of the things that I've been thinking about over the last week, couple weeks, as we started listening through this about the, the longevity of this band. And as a, as a prelude, like it's really interesting, you know, to hear you talk about always sort of being aware of Rush, but not really like diving in and really understanding the whole catalog until much, much later. And I think it's going to be very interesting to get the, every everybody's perspective as to how they sort of found Rush or got into Rush and, and things like that. One of the things that I was thinking a lot about listening to the first four albums over the last couple of weeks is how much these first four albums haven't mattered to me in in my my overall you know musical life. Um, sure. I have a couple tunes from each one that have always kind of stuck with me and and things like that. But I, I never really even consider these albums when I think about when I think about Rush. And yet, you know, it and it has a lot to do with kind of what you said, Joe, the fact that my sisters had the vinyl permanent waves floating around my house that I picked up and played one day because I was like, oh, everybody seems to like this band. And, you know, Tom Sawyer was on the radio when, when we were in junior high and, and, um, and, you know, so you're always aware of them. And, you know, I really liked permanent waves. And when I went to college, I threw permanent waves on a cassette and, oh, they, my sisters also had hemispheres. Cause I guess they liked the, like the song trees. So I threw that on there, but I didn't really get into rush until you know, a couple of years, probably my freshman year of college is when I really kind of dove in. And, and so the, the period of time that I really discovered and dove in, I think predisposes me to a certain opinions about all of their music. And kind of an example is some of the albums that I really love the most are, you know, compared to someone like my friend Mike Fuda, my acoustic duo partner, who, if I say, play a Rush lick, he's going to play something off the first album. Because wow. he's, he's just... Really? Oh my God. Yes. He's just a few years older than I am. Uh, but he was coming of age in a, in a, you know, when these first four albums were, you know, you know, a big thing. And he was learning how to play guitar. And so... When he thinks of Rush, he thinks of Rush and Fly By Night. And sure, he knows everything else, but he's sort of predisposed to those to those records because they made such a huge impact on him at, at, at such the right age. Where for me, those were always albums that I was looking in the rearview mirror. And, you know, to your point, the further you get away from the point of discovery, it seems that you find less attraction with with some of those pieces although um particularly their last album i thought was really really good as well um so i think they they finished strong with the um the clockworks is that i think that's what it's called but clockwork but, angels or something like clockwork that. angels thank you yeah 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 so um <coughs> so it, it's just i'm really interested to hear you know, as we walk through this, how everyone sort of jumped into Rush and, you know, Ken, I'm curious about, because Ken, you were, you were one of those people that were talking to me about Rush and playing me Rush songs on their guitar 
before I even really gave a hoot about them and, and really and really knew them. So curious to know yeah. your experience discovery. Of yeah, them. The, the, the earlier, the better. Um, uh, I, I, before the podcast goes off the deep end in the intricacies of <laughs> the first four albums, um, let me bloviate about the, the, the recording process I went through. Um, it was it was a big deal. Um, uh, it was 1981. In retrospect, I had a mono cassette recorder, and it had an external mic. That 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 allowed me to record the acoustic guitar I had, and it allowed me to record off the television. Um, when MTV broadcast the Exit Stage Left concert. At mm. 11 p.m. on a weekend night, I <laughs> sat next to the television with my mono boombox, <laughs> and I recorded the entire broadcast, including commercials. And they had a Chevy Camaro commercial with a really fat synthesizer sound that that would play. That uh, and then J.J. Jackson was the VJ. And he narrated this whole intro about exit stage left rush. And it was great. And um, then, then that would segue into this uh, Camaro synthesizer music. And then and then it would come in and hear the crowd. And, and uh, I managed to stay awake and flip the tape like at, at, a, at an appropriate time and record that whole thing. Um, so. That that I, I was just uh, obsessed clearly with music. I mean, I, I had these other collections too, where you could just get them off the radio. It was the King Biscuit Flower Hour and other things like that. And mm -hmm. you know, yeah. recording, recording off the radio was was a thing, but but actually, like sitting in front of the television, you know, that that was going the extra mile because I had to have. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> that and that and and that and that was was rush and i don't know what did it i'm assuming it was tom sawyer but you know um the, the the others weren't weren't far behind shall we say um and 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 you guys picked up where i left off because I, I just went off into other things and well uh, i i i don't think i i cared that much about even what happened after moving pictures what what was that signals or something what, what happened right after yeah. uh, signals yeah yeah it was okay it was okay but but for moving pictures i, I was just mesmerized amazing wow so so you know ken it's funny you're tied to uh, the many of my early rush memories because i have a distinct memory of of being in your bedroom with your when when you were playing your black Aria Pro Two guitar, and you were playing me the trees, and and uh, wow, <coughs> and you were playing me part of the trees, and I had never heard of the song before, and you were saying, "Oh my gosh, the words on this this song," you may have been using more colorful language. But you were saying that the words of, of this song were so great. And um, you were like sifting through 
you know, a bunch of papers that had lyrics written down on it. And, and you handed me the, the, um, the lyrics to the trees that you had hand handwritten and you were, you were saying how great it was. And I was reading it and, and, you know, it was just like overwhelming your enthusiasm, you know, for something <laughs> that, that I had never heard before was just difficult to put my, put my brain around. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, that was one of the the songs that the, the reason my sister bought Hemispheres was because she wanted to hear the trees because it was such a cool song. Um, but it's still even after you shared that with me, it was so much longer before I had um, had figured it out. But you were a part of the moment that triggered my diving into Rush. I, I, I was the my fresh it was our freshman year of college. And I don't know if it was Thanksgiving break or if it was a weekend after Thanksgiving, but it was cold. It was before the Christmas holiday, the Christmas break. And <coughs> I think I think you, me, and Dan, for some reason, we're gonna go to the e-lab at Drexel to um fart around on something, or maybe we were just going to play pool um hmm. or do something silly in like Montgomeryville or or that, you know, that area. Hmm. But um and I don't remember where we went because my memory stops at the point that I was walking out of the, the Mac machine, the ATM in Chalfont, right next to the gas station across from what used to be the bowling alley, right? And I was walking out and getting into the back, the back door of Dan's purple, like Opal type car, whatever that, whatever that was. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was and I, in something or other. Yeah, and I get into the car, and he is blasting <laughs> Grace Under Pressure, track one, Ugh. and close the door, and I am just like completely immersed with this glorious keyboard, drum, and guitar sound, and I was just like, I had never heard Rush like that loud, like that whatever, and <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, and we listened to Grace Under Pressure all the way you know to wherever we were going and when i went back to college uh that weekend after that weekend i spent the better part of the following week trying to get someone to drive me to the park city mall so i could buy a cassette of grace under pressure wow <laughs> and and i i succeeded by the end of the week i had gotten someone to drive me out there and i picked it up and i and I started my journey on Rush at that point in time. Um, and it, uh, <coughs> there, are, there are a lot of fun Rush stories around that, about that month. It was, a, it was an amazing experience diving in. But I must have played Grace Under Pressure, you know, but from the, be from the end of, of the fall semester to the beginning of the spring semester, I must have played Grace Under Pressure 250 times. Oh, my God. I don't think I've played it once, but that's awesome. No, you had to have, Ken, because I remember I remember sitting in our, our physics class uh, in our in high school and you talking. Remember when we would sit there at those stupid wave pools and we would just yeah. uh, we would just talk for an hour and a half while the little electronic waves were going on. Yeah. And you were going on and on about the song Kid, Kid Gloves on Grace Under Pressure. Really? Which is one of my favorite favorite songs. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 
Oh man. Oh gosh. So uh so there it is. Oh man. Joe, did you have not sure. we're not we're not entertaining our audience if Joe's text messaging while we're uh, we're having the discussion. <laughs> no, actually I'm I'm looking up because I'm trying to see what the release date of Grace Under Pressure was because that was that was my gateway. That was actually that was released in 1984. Yeah, remember the ponytail that Getty Lee had going on in the square base? And okay. So, so that makes that makes more sense with 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 my story then, because Grace Under Pressure was was also my entry into Yes. Although I stood in in the foyer for many many years. <laughs> <laughs> presumably about presumably uh, 15 to 20 years before I actually really took off. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, my, my memory, like I said, you know, when I was growing up, um, Dave was the one who was always making these mixtapes off the radio. And so, so he, and I would, I would always listen to Dave's tapes because they were just, I thought they were really, really good. And so I remember, I remember subdivisions. I remember Entree knew, um, you know, everybody knew Tom Sawyer, obviously. Um, but, but th those were really the, the ones that sort of resonated with me. And I have absolutely no recollection of why I purchased grace under pressure. Um, but you know, when I had started to get into music, you know, LPs were still the deal. And my dad had this, this kicking um, stereo with a turntable. And so I would, I would carry my, my records to his house on the weekends. And like Friday night, he would go out and, um, and play cards with his buddies. And I would just, you know, work the shit out of his stereo um, <laughs> playing these things. And then I don't know if you guys remember the basement on Peggy Lane. Yep, but but mm -hmm. when I when I created my layer down there, I had a much less elegant um, stereo setup than my father had, and so at some point in that period, I picked up Grace Under Pressure. Which, if you think about the rest of my music taste at the time, you know it it was a perhaps more sophisticated than most of the, the stuff I was listening to. But I, I vividly remember just connecting with grace under pressure. There was something about it and what I, you know, sort of the, the residual memory that I have, and, and I can still picture this perfectly because I don't know if you guys remember, but I had, I had a dartboard on sort of the back wall of that basement and the little basement window was off to your right. And so the, the light would sort of shine in and I had my stereo set up just on the right of sort of the throwing lane. And I would just sit down there in the basement and throw darts for hours listening to music really, really loud. And Grace Under Pressure was, you know, sort of like you, Paul. And I don't know how many times I listened to it, but I listened to it a lot of times. So I, I there was just something about Grace Under Pressure. I I'm pretty sure I didn't have any other Rush albums like that. Bless you. I I honestly don't think I ever I don't think I bought Power Windows until years after the fact. 
Um, I remember for some reason I had a vinyl. I still actually have a vinyl copy of Hold Your Fire, which I just Ooh. didn't get at all. And then I remember Hold Your Fire was my jam for a while. It was just was very, it? I, I I purchased a cassette, and for some reason it was background music. I think Time Stand Still was just kind of like mesmerizing and easy to listen to. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I owned it. I didn't get it. And I remember it would have been our sophomore year of college when Presto came out. And that was yep. sort of the big, the big sound change. And it's like suddenly you could hear Alex everywhere again. And you're like, oh. And so I, I remember that. And I remember a lot of the guys that I knew at Delaware at the time were talking about that. And then Roll the Bones came out when Paul, you and I were in our radio phase, and that was kind of a letdown. And I don't know that I really much concerned myself with Rush beyond that. I knew, like I said, up until, you know, probably close to 2000, I really, I, I knew the trees existed. I'd probably heard it a couple of times, but I knew nothing about hemispheres. I, I knew that 2112 was sort of like, you know, the the most admired Rush album, if you will, but I never heard it, never cared to hear it. Um, I, I just didn't know anything about it. And and then, like I said, right around the time I moved um, into Trophy Club, so I don't, I don't know if it was before or after I started having kids, but at some point I had started going crazy and, and I was just sort of filling in... Um, my my CD collection because I had started buying CDs at that point and I was still still very heavily into the ones that I I I had and I remember starting I, I started and this is going to be stupid but for me because I I think I had moving pictures and at some point I heard signals and I was so happy with myself because I figured out from the songwriting and the sound of that record that it had to fit in immediately before Grace Under Pressure. Because everything I knew about Rush was sort of farther away from Grace Under Pressure. And then when I heard Signals, it's like, you know, oh, there's the missing piece. Wonderful. Cool. And I thought, well, that's great. And so I started to work my way backwards into the catalog um, in that time period. And like I said, I remember I got to to hemispheres and you know once i got that oh god i was just i i honestly didn't even go back any further i had caress of steel because for some reason i became i i was obsessed with caress of steel for the same completely irrational reasons i was always obsessed with relayer um but i didn't get it or understand it necessarily and like i said once i got to to hemispheres i didn't need any more i I thought I owned a copy of, of Fly By Night, but I couldn't find it when I started preparing for this. And I'm fairly certain that I had never, ever, before two weeks ago, listened to the first album at all. I had heard yeah. the, the two songs that were on Rush Chronicles, and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, nothing... I, I had no reason 
to go back because I was fully satisfied with what I had. And I was amazed at how much I've enjoyed listening to these first four albums. Um, yeah. I, did, I did cheat a little bit today um, driving into work because I, I pulled out Rush Chronicles specifically because I wanted to hear the live version of Passage to Bangkok. Oh. I, I, I remembered that live version on Chronicles being way better than what's on the studio album. So I pulled it out and it's it's in the middle of disc two. And so I I just couldn't help myself. So I went back a couple tracks and I just I, I did severe damage to my speakers uh, nice. driving in, into work today. Um, but but that being said, I, I have been for the last couple of weeks very, very true to these first four albums and, and I have enjoyed it tremendously. Wow. Um, you know, they're they're <laughs> they're they're not without their 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 setbacks, their their low points, whatever you want to call it. But you know, I've I found a lot more to like here than I was anticipating. That's um, that's awesome, Joe. So a couple of things that I just want to add to what you said because it's just hitting me. So it's interesting that we both had sort of our entry into Rush through Grace Under Pressure. Grace Under Pressure. If you get rid of their release feedback which is pretty much a bullshit release it's just uh, cover songs that they did um if you remove that and you look at just all of their original works grace under pressure sits exactly in the middle so there really? are nine there are nine albums before it and there are nine albums after it and so i just find that interesting and i am so like in sync with what you're saying I enjoyed listening to these first four albums because I know I don't think I ever really stopped to listen to them as as albums. I I I've just listened to them in, in pieces, with the exception of Caress of Steel. Strangely enough, um, I never really like put them on and listened to them and thought about you know is there a creative arc going on here or anything like that, and. Prior to this exercise over the last two weeks, I had never listened to completely through to the the first self-titled album. And and after these couple of weeks, I can probably safely bet that I will never listen to it again <laughs> after. <laughs> but it's not to say that there aren't some redeeming things about it. I just, you know, it's just not my rush. So well, and and I think that's a, a really solid way to say it because it is, it's 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 so different from what you know we we sort of have in our mind of what Rush is or should be. I, I'm embarrassed to say, until I was putting together my my little episode sheets, I didn't even know that. that Neil wasn't the drummer on the first record. <laughs> Here we go again. It's like with Merlion. Right? What? I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Who's this guy? And uh, I, I, you know, I just, I was under the impression that, you know, Rush was always, um, was always Neil, Getty, and, and Alex, and that was it. But no, that's, that's not the case at all. And in fact, I guess Getty wasn't even the original bassist slash singer. Um, based on 
you know, the, the minor amounts of research that I did sort of, um, well, yeah, it took him a couple of years to get, to get the band together. So to say, so to say, yeah. But, uh, but once they started recording, um, you, you know, I, it's funny. The first album is, you know, I, you know, people I've heard Rush referred to as like the Canadian Led Zeppelin, right? And that's, that's, those kind of comparisons are obvious with the, you know, the screeching vocals. And I do mean screeching vocals. And <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And the, yeah, I mean, let's just put it out there, like all, all the way through these first, like, well, I would say the first three albums, you know, there's a certain quality to Getty Lee's voice that's just not pleasant. And um, see, I would I would say it actually is at its worst on twenty one twelve. Well, probably, so yeah. Well, what's yeah, interesting to me? About, sorry, Ken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just just the way it comes, he may be producing the same voice with the same style and motivation, but the production on twenty one twelve makes it worse. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like he. He, it, there are glimpses in 2112 that you know he's starting to figure out how to smooth out, out smooth it out a little bit and i think he's i think he's just becoming better at writing writing in a, in a more pleasant range because it's almost like it's either all or nothing right he's either like screaming or he's mm -hmm. singing nice melodies where i think he's starting to figure out how how that changes which i think becomes noticeable and in farewell to kings um but it's definitely a, a steady progression throughout the first eight albums probably um but you know the one thing that i wanted to say is that canadian led zeppelin maybe but i would say probably you know with more so the overall sound you could you could call them a canadian leonard skinner because some of their guitar riffs are it's just oh like, beautiful what? yeah 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 absolutely I've, I I actually made that note here in a couple different places it's it's amazing yeah so you know it sounds like we sort of gotten through the preamble section so should we run through sort of the official yeah um, stuff for these four albums and that way we can kind of pick and choose where we go from here. So if yeah. we do that, we can As start like. off. We can start off with the self-titled debut, Rush, released in 1974, produced by Rush, um, released on the the labels Moon and later on Mercury. That's a very interesting story in and of itself. Um, band lineup for this album was Getty Lee on lead vocals and bass, Alex Lyson on guitar and backing vocals. And John Rutsey on drums, percussion, and backing vocals. Go figure. Rush is the debut studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released on March 1st, 1974, by the band's own label Moon Records in Canada, and by Mercury Records in the United States and internationally. Their first release shows how much of the hard rock sound typical of many of the popular rock bands emerging earlier in the decade. Rush were fans of such bands as Led Zeppelin and Cream, and these influences can be heard in most of the songs on this album. Original drummer John Rutsey performed all drum parts on the album, but was unable to go on extended tours because of complications with his diabetes, and so he retired from the band after the album was released. 
Rutsey contributed to the album's lyrics, but never submitted the work to the other members of the band. The lyrics were instead entirely composed by Lee and Lifeson. Rutsey was soon replaced by Neil Peart, who has remained the band's drummer as well as their primary lyricist. Their second album, Fly By Night, released in 1975, and I have a note here because it was February of 1975. That's going to become important in a minute. This was produced by Rush and Terry Brown, so enter Terry Brown, longtime collaborator. Released on the uh, the label Anthem Mercury, um, featuring Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and now Neil Peart on uh, drums. Fly By Night is the second studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released in February 1975. It was the first Rush album to showcase elements of progressive rock for which the band has become known. This release was also the first to feature lyricist and drummer Neil Peart. Mm -hmm. Then, in September of 1975, here again, we've had this, you know, we, we, how it takes five years to get an album out of a band nowadays. These guys have two in seven months. So September of 1975, they released Caress of Steel. Produced by Rush and Terry Brown, released on the, the label Anthem slash Mercury, featuring Getty, Alex, and Neil. Caress of Steel is the third studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released in 1975. The album shows more of Rush's adherence to hard progressive rock, as opposed to the blues-based hard rock style of the band's first album. And then finally... We have 2112, released in 1976, produced by Rush and Terry Brown, released on the Anthem label, featuring Getty, Alex, and Neil. 2112 is the fourth studio album by the Canadian rock band Rush, released on April 1st, 1976, by Anthem Records. After they finished touring their previous album, Caress of Steel, in early 1976, the band were in financial hardship due to the album's disappointing sales, unfavorable critical reception, and a decline in numbers at their shows. Their international label, Mercury Records, considered dropping them, but granted Rush one more album following negotiations with their manager, Roy Daniels. 2112 was recorded in February 1976 in Toronto with their longtime producer, Terry Brown. Its centerpiece is a 20-minute title track, a futuristic science fiction song with five individual tracks on side two. 2112 was released to favorable reviews from music critics and quickly outsold the band's previous albums. It peaked at number five on the Canadian album charts and number 61 on the U.S. Billboard top LPs and tape. Rush supported the album with a tour of North America and for the first time across Europe from February 1976 to June 1977. 2112 remains the band's second highest selling album with over 3 million copies sold in the U.S. It is listed in 1001 albums you must hear before you die and ranked second on Rolling Stone's Reader's Poll, really? your favorite prog rock albums of all time. Huh. We may have to look into that poll. <laughs> 2112 has been reissued several times. A 40th anniversary edition was released in 2016 with previously unreleased material, including the album performed by artists including Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins, Stephen Wilson, and Alice in Chains. So the table is set, gentlemen. 
the first four Rush albums are available for discussion. Well, I, I, I oh, go I, ahead. I, I was just going to say I find it fascinating um, to hear that 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 Mike Fuda, if you ask him to play a Rush lick, is going to play something off of of this album. But you know, if if that's if that's you know his gateway, then that's what resonates yeah. with him, I guess. This and, is exactly what he's going to play right here. This song, if you can hear it. Which is a pretty badass opening to any rock album. It really is. I mean, that, that's the thing. There, there's nothing wrong with, except the occasional Getty Lee vo vocal, you know, vibrating your spinal cord. Um, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with this album. It is it is rocking, but you know it's also I, I think it's of of all of the first four, it's the most dated, if that's even possible to say. I mean, it just sounds like it was recorded in the early '70s. Yeah, it, it really, really does. And you know, we talked about the the Led Zeppelin thing. Um, I have I have the Leonard Skinner remark next to in the mood yeah uh, on on this album so you know and, and it's one of those things where and and we've all sort of gone through this um i really shouldn't lump myself into that but when you have young musicians who are starting out as songwriters and they don't necessarily know who or what they are. They don't have their own style yet. They sort of, you know, parrot things that they listen to all the time. So I, I don't know that it's surprising that, you know, this album comes out like this. And, and we had this sort of discussion in the King's X thing when we got to Black Like Sunday. Because, you know, there again, prior to back Black Like Sunday, you know, it seemed as if King's X dropped from the heavens Right. formed out of the silent planet when in fact that that isn't what happened and those songs on black like sunday you know um serve some of the same function i think as as the music we're hearing here on this debut album yeah and what's cool is that like these songs were born out of them playing in clubs and bars and dance halls and being a part of the live music scene and you know they were they were heavy rockers and you know Getty's frantically writing lyrics and he's like you said used to playing these you know blues based rock stuff and they go through a creative progression throughout their career i mean you said it joe earlier on that from the beginning like really you know from Walking into this, I would have said, yeah, from Farewell to Kings all the way through to, well, you know, we can debate, you know, how far it goes, but they never miss a beat. And I think you can argue that they really don't miss a beat from the very beginning. I mean, each album shows some kinds of growth. Maybe you don't always like it, but they're always going somewhere. They're always pushing the the envelope of what they can do and, and what their abilities, you know, where they can take themselves. And it just keeps getting better and better. And, and, and they're starting 
had a, a pretty incredible foundation of just this raucous blues rock. Yeah, and and you know, I, I I'm not sure. You know, as I listen to this, and and it's it's a shame that that Jay wasn't able to join us because I would love sort of having a a true drummer's perspective on this. But you know, you wonder how much of not having Neil on this record influenced, or how much Neil's introduction on the later records influenced the direction they went. Because clearly, you know, he's a different cat, and. You know, as I listen to this, you know, and, and I actually wrote the, the, the note down here, I'm not sure that at this point, Getty Lee was was a virtuoso. By the time we're all said and done, he clearly is. But, I, you know, I don't think he was at this point. Yeah, it's that's a great point, because I remember reading when I was looking up... Um, when I was looking up, uh, shoot, um, John Rutsey, that he was the guy who was always pushing them to practice, and he always wanted to get you know polished and and get the show going, and and you know I think it led Alex to say in a in an interview at some point that there would be no rush, or maybe some maybe it wasn't Alex, maybe it was somebody. There would be no rush without John Rutsey, and yet I think when Neil joins the band, he's the best musician in the group which you don't often say about the drummer. Ha, ha, ha. It's too bad Jay isn't here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and it's not to say that, that Eddie and or Eddie, it's not to say that uh, Getty and Alex are as slouches at any degree. They are rip roaring players. They're, they're just, you know, they're just to say this, this sounds silly. To say they're just blues rock and roll players, they're they're exceptional. But you're right. When Neil joins the band, you know he's he's gonna say, "Wow, that's a cool riff. I'm gonna match it by playing the snare and the hi hat along with you to that same rhythm instead of just playing a beat." Yeah. And all of a sudden, the whole entire musicianship gets elevated, and you know you. you they start pushing each other, I think, to to get better. And I agree, like, you don't hear Getty ripping out, you know, massive bass lines like you do in, in later in later albums. You start hearing some of it peek through in 2112 um, and, and, and in Fly By Night, I think. But Before we dive into the brilliance, there are very virtuous moments in this album i i just find the whole period from the early 60s to the mid 70s to be the best period of recorded music before it was royally screwed up with all sorts of horrible techniques in, in recording um it, it, this is a very pure recording I recommend listening to it with decent bass, like in a modern car, like I had the pleasure of doing, um, you know, really good earbuds, not crappy ones. Um, it would have been meant for tape or vinyl. And I like this simplicity. I really like John Rutsey, surprisingly. I didn't even know who he was, but I really like him. Yeah. Now yeah. that I know who he is. And I just love the purity 
of Lifeson's guitar. Um, isn't it, isn't it uh, one of these working men? I read the solo was voted one of the top 100 rock solos at some point. I mean, it is a good solo, right? I mean, it, it is. And the end of that song it, it is rocking. It is uh, rocking. He, he, yeah, he does. He does a little reprise at the end, but, but the solo in the middle. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it all gains steam, um, and 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 it, it's not simply, uh, uh, you know, just prowess with with fingers. What really drags me in is ju just how close we are to the instrument. It's not too reverb. It's not too far away. I just love going back and listening to this period. You know, after knowing and hearing all the insane things that we call recorded audio, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 particularly on um, here again, it's like a, a I I think that's the one that's a slow waltz. Yeah, I'm a sucker for anything in three. Like our favorite song, Easter by Marillion, is in groups of three, and here again <laughs> is in groups of three, and I think there's something really soothing about that we we need our four four rock and roll all the time but when we mellow out we need that little lumpy three thing happening it, it's amazing you should say that ken because here again is you know as i started listening to this and and you know you, you sort of chew on it for a little bit and you wait for the the different flavors to sort of come through and here again was the first song that really separated itself for me and it was one of those things where I, I had it playing and I, I think I was packing for my trip and I was like, I, I stopped and I'm like, this is phenomenal. And, you know, every time I've listened to, to the album since then, you know, I, I always pay particular attention to here again. So for me, that was something that just, um, you know, really, really resonated. Cool. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Paul. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything specific to add to that. I, I've, I don't know if, if my summation of this album is, is really is resonates or if it's just way off the mark. But you know, I, like I think John Rutsey is awesome in this album, and I think they play great. And there's, you know, the songs are terrific. And I, I the way I think of it is that they were one of the best at doing what everybody else was doing in, you know, in 1974. Well, and, and, and I think I, what I was, what I was thinking about as you were saying that Paul is, 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 is exactly that. It's, it's really good, but it's not sort of transcendently different. I think when you, you know, by the time you get into um, you know, a farewell to Kings and, and hemispheres and into moving pictures and everything else. Um, you know, Rush, Rush weren't doing what everyone else was doing. Rush was, you know, completely in their own area. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's fascinating when you think about, um, you know, one, with with this album, and and again, it's it's I'm not taking anything away from it because it's extraordinarily well done, but it it does sound like a standard trio, and and everyone fits in their their sort of slotted area, and and the pieces 
fit together the way they're supposed to for a trio. But as Rush started to evolve their their sound and their their songwriting approach, they they started, I think, to break some of those rules a little bit. You know, as you were talking about, as to where the pieces fit together. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, but it, it it's like I said, I I was amazed at how much I really really enjoyed this this album, and it does it just it kicks ass. You know, yeah, there's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and and there's nothing wrong with kicking some ass every now and again. I'm very, very pleased with that. I, I mean, they earn their stripes in pubs, and it's kind of like the bar band that clean themselves up. Right. <laughs> right. Um, they, they do have an alter ego here on the Palaver. The alter <laughs> ego band is where an otherwise classy band of progressive rock nature becomes a sleazy band in some shape or form. And I would nominate Need Some Love and In The Mood. For that <laughs> in the mood almost counts as an IRL, I think. <laughs> uh, it's about oh, what was that indecent rock lyric? Um, what was it? Immoral it rock indecent. lyric, immoral, yeah, there it was. Moral rock lyric, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's true if you if you come at these albums the way I, I guess we all did, where you're you're, you're, you start with moving pictures and grace under pressure, exit stage left, and those those records, and then you you kind of work your way through the catalog back to this. It, it's it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of these things is not like the other? <laughs> oh yeah, this one. <laughs> I just have some some quick notes about some of the songs here as I was kind of just going through this. Um, you know, so on finding my way, you know, we're talking about Mike Fiedo whipping out this uh, this guitar line. You know, my notes here say it rocks and love the guitar lines. So yeah, I can understand why he would do that. Um, Need some love is very straightforward. Um, we already talked about here again. What you're doing is is a Led Zeppelin song. In the mood is a Leonard Skinner song. Yeah. Um, before and after, I, I love the sort of. I, I wrote down here, and I don't know if this is the appropriate word. I wasn't really convinced when I wrote it down. I, I referred to it as a soaring circular riff. It just kind of keeps going around, and it's it's very very cool. And it's funny because here you've got this extraordinarily straightforward blues based, you know, rock album. And in this particular song, there are no vocals until halfway through the song, which it's it's not a huge, you know, departure and, and you almost don't even notice it. But it, it it does seem a little out of place, you know, with everything else. And and I was surprised because, you know, a working man is is known even to, you know, those of us who weren't familiar with this album because, you know, it, it did show up on, on on Chronicles and whatnot, it's really, really long. Surprisingly long for this record. And I do think it, in a lot of ways, presages Passage to Bangkok. As I was listening to it, after I'd gotten through 2112, and I went back and listened to Working Man, I'm like, oh, okay. So, that was my deal on that. Cool. Nice. Anything else? on the the debut album 
thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. As always, we welcome and uh, look forward to your input, your feedback. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter at ProgPala on each of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You can also email us. Our email address is Progressive, or I'm sorry, ProgPala at gmail.com. And um, we look forward to continuing our consideration of Rush in our next episode as we move on to Fly By Night and Caress of Steel. <laughs>